Hello, everyone. In today's episode, I chat with Faith, a fellow money blogger here based in the UK. We talk about what it's like to live with less, what's the difference between minimalism and frugalism, and how they are combined with FI. And we talk a lot about her own journey, how she discovered the whole personal finance movement and how it helped her take control of her finances. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Arminta, and Matthias. Okay, hello everyone. I am here with Faith. Faith, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, you are quite a well-known money blogger here in the UK. And today I kind of wanted to chat a bit about minimalism, frugality, and your own path to FI. But before we start, could you tell our listeners a bit maybe who you are and what is it that you currently do? Well, I'm Faith Archer and I'm a freelance personal finance journalist and a money blogger at Much More With Less. Um, so I guess I earn my money by writing about it. I live out in Suffolk with my husband and two school age kids. Uh, we made the big move from London just over five years ago. Five years? Six years ago now. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and it was uh, all part of quite a big um, lifestyle change um, around the idea that it was possible to live on a lot less money and still enjoy living. Nice. And we'll definitely talk about that. Moving to the countryside sounds really nice, especially now, right, with uh, lockdown. So I think the advantages of moving out of the big cities have really become apparent during yeah. lockdown, especially when all the advantages of living in a city perhaps have been shut down, all that disappeared. The restaurants yep. and culture and so on. Yep, yep, yep. Very interesting. Okay, so what your your website, your blog is is mostly about this, right? Like living with less. So what what does that mean to you? What does it mean to live with less? I think fundamentally for me, it's about focusing on what's really important. Um, thinking about what actually makes you happy. I think we are surrounded every day with pressures to consume, surrounded by marketing and advertising, conjuring up this vision that somehow if you buy stuff, your life will be better. And it will magically make you into a new and improved version of yourself. And I think for me, living on less is, is kind of um, calling a halt to that and looking at it and just saying, well, is that actually true? What, what is it? that would make me happy, that would make my family happier, because I don't think it's buying stuff. So for us, um, part of the decision to move out of London was saying, actually, we think time together is more important than both of us with London jobs earning London salaries and the ability to purchase more. Yeah. And on your website, you talk a lot about this and also minimalism. Would you say that you know, we were just chatting about this before we started recording. The difference between minimalism and living with less. What, what would you say are the main differences there? I think minimalism is about owning less. And kind of living with less frugality is more about spending less. And although they do both have big overlaps in terms of 
questioning, you know, what you're buying and buying less of it. They're not necessarily identical things. I can't pretend to be a poster girl for minimalism. As anybody who has seen my house can tell you, I do not live in a white Zen world with one carefully chosen vase um, and a futon on the floor. But (laughs) I think in trying to live on less and make the most of the money I do have, it does make me very much question how much I consume and think much more carefully about what I buy and and by implication buy less of it. Mm -hmm. It's like a a combination, really. Um, It's it's a balancing act. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And would you say that FI, so financial independence, is that more... I mean, it, it ties quite well with minimalism and, and living with less. To what extent do you feel that minimalism or or and frugality ties in well with FI? Like, what is its role in reaching financial independence? I think the role of frugality and minimalism in both cases is questioning what you spend and ending up consuming less. That is something that can really help um, move towards FI because if you want to be financially independent, um, you can't spend all your money. You know, the whole definition of it is building up enough money um, that you can make choices about how you spend your life. And so if you are consciously reducing the amount you consume and then putting that money into your emergency savings, into your investments to reach FI, it can fit really well. And one of the other one of the best ways to reach FI is if you actually reduce your living costs, both in allowing you to have money to set aside and meaning you need less money to live on for the rest of your life. Um, and therefore questioning how much you consume and consuming less will get you further along the path and enable you to live longer in financial freedom. I guess we can all agree that if you're trying to reach FI, you are inherently a minimalist. Well, to some degree, obviously not 100%, maybe, but you must have some, a little bit of a consciousness about your spending and therefore be, you know, frugal or kind of a minimalist in order to reach FI. Would you say that's right? I, I think my my slight hesitation is obviously there are some people that um, pursue a kind of supercharged version of FI, mm, the kind of fire, fire. Right. Um, and I mean I think to a certain extent <laughs> anybody who is trying to pursue financial independence is privileged to a certain extent because you you actually have more money than you need for everyday essentials. You know, you're not just scraping by with nothing over. Um, you know, you do, you have carved out some money that you can set aside. Um, and I think only people who are earning enormous amounts will be able yeah. to carry on spending at a ridiculous rate while still setting aside enough money to reach um, financial independence. So I guess basically, yes, I do agree with you that yes. um, if, you're, if you're reaching for financial independence, then you have probably have gone through a mindset of questioning Mm-hmm. what your money brings and saying, you know what, I can see advantages to not spending it now for how I can live in the future. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'd love to talk a bit about your own personal journey. So can you tell us a little bit how you got started? When did you discover, maybe not FI, but the whole personal finance world? Because I think that's how you started, right? You started by just realizing you were a personal finance journalist, right? And that's how you discovered that actually by being in control of your money, things were a little bit easier. So can you maybe tell us a little bit what that process was like? And yeah, how, how did you get into all this? 
Well, I think for most people, their attitudes to money date right back to their childhood. And so I'd say I've always been a, a saver. I've always been pretty boringly sensible with money. Um, and I think, you know, I had one one parent who was a saver and one parent who was a spender, and that caused a certain amount of friction. Um, and we used to live in a tiny village in Leicestershire. And so quite, quite early on as a kid, I was fairly determined that I did not want to live in that small village anymore. And so you know, I, I wouldn't have known the phrase financial independence, but the idea that I needed to get a job, I needed to earn my own money so I could live in my own space and not live in a tiny village, that was important to me. And it meant, for example, um, when I was a, a student, I did my best to avoid um, taking on a lot of debt. You know, I was very careful with my money then. I think moving into what moving into personal finance journalism helped me to do was kind of understand more of the tools that are out there, more of the ways that you can make the most of your money, whether that is looking for higher interest savings accounts for your emergency savings, taking advantage of the tax breaks on um, individual savings accounts and pensions. And what it did do was introduce me to the world of investing because that wasn't something that was in any way part of my family background. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, aside from a pension, um, I'm actually being quite late to the world of investing. Yeah, of course. So, so tell us, how, how did you get started with investing? How did everything, how do you start setting a system up? Well, we, there are a couple of things. I mean, because a lot of people say they're not investors, but if you've got a pension, you will be. And so I think I'd understood the importance of that. And in my 20s, I started setting money aside in my pension when I did have my job at the Daily Telegraph. Um, my boss was very encouraging about the idea of adding extra money beyond what you were mandated to do. Um, so I topped up with additional voluntary contributions at that stage. But I think he also was a, is still is a very active investor himself and talked a lot about it, you know, which circumstances it was suitable when it wasn't. And so for me, once my husband and I got to the stage of getting through paying down, paying down a mortgage, you know, getting on the property ladder, paying down a mortgage, what actually finally actually uh, started me investing was investing in my kids. Because um, one of the few mm. things I'd taken away was, although the stock market will go up and down, over time, it trends upwards. And if you are saving for as long as 18 years, then equities, shares are overwhelmingly, uh, it's an overwhelming probability that they will be do better than staying in cash. So that um, investing, um, at the time it was child trust funds, investing for my kids, that's what finally got me involved. And then subsequently, other investments came once we had moved house and freed up some cash. And I could look at money and think, you know what? Well, I've been thinking of that money in my ISAs, in my cash ISAs, as being for retirement. And given that I'm not going to spend that for a couple of decades, then it was kind of a light moment. Oh my God, it shouldn't be in cash. I should be investing that money. I need to shovel it and cross into the stock market. Yeah, of course. And I think for our listeners who are based in the UK, it'd be very interesting to hear kind of what accounts did you open? Uh, I know there's several kinds of ISAs. And if you're comfortable with saying like percentages, maybe how you organized yourself in order to max out maybe, or if you were able to max out those uh, ISAs or any other accounts, it'd be just, just interesting, uh, more practical kind of um, advice for our listeners. So only with what you're comfortable with, obviously. 
I think in terms of how you would go about it, I mean, when I when I first started using ISAs, then it was actually possible to max out your ISA allowance each year because I think it was only about, you know, five grand, three grand. Oh, yeah. right, right at the beginning. Now it's 20,000 pounds a year. That's 20,000. That's yeah. um, slightly bigger stretch uh, in order to take advantage of your full ISA allowance. I, I think the key thing is to to remember is that you don't have to start with massive sums like mm-hmm. that. There are whether you go for robo advisors that you can open accounts with only a pound or look at investment platforms or regular saving schemes. Quite often, those can be started with 25, 50, 100 pounds a month. And the sooner you set up a direct debit, the sooner that money mm. will start going out rather than and start going out, going out each month and mounting up. Um, I think one of my concerns um, right at the beginning was I kind of knew I should be investing, but it was the nerves about when and how to start. I kept putting it off and benefit of hindsight. You know, I think I should have just, you know, taken the plunge earlier um, and set up regular payments. Um, So the way it works now, because I'm self-employed, so I think it's it's almost easier if you're an employee with a regular income to kind of set percentages and amounts. And I think for for me now, I have a balance that I have regular direct debits going out into a pension. But then I also, a couple of times a year, probably I would have a look at my freelance income. It tends to be spurred end of January and I'm putting my uh, tax return in. That's when I really think about what I've brought in over the year and what, we, what I've got sitting around. And I will top up um, pensions and ISIS at that stage with um, larger lump sums. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you also have your child, you, you mentioned a child account uh, for your children. Child so, um, so now, uh, nowadays it'd be junior ISA. Um, yeah. And those, when my kids were first born and they're now 12 and 10, um, what I actually did for um, my first child was uh, set aside the child benefit, just kind of mm-hmm. sign that over um, by direct debit into her child trust fund. Um, and nowadays I stopped that after a while when I had my second queer kid and I'd gone freelance and money was tight. Um, but it, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a reasonable balance in there. Now we still add time to time if they get, for example, Christmas money, we'll use that to top up. And one of the, one of the elements of child trust funds and junior ISAs is the money becomes the child's at 18. Mm-hmm. And so because it is theirs. It's it's theirs to choose what they do with it. So you would hope that you would bring your children out to make sensible decisions about what to do with that money rather than blowing on fast cars and faster living. Um, but I, I think um, a personal approach is, you know, there's money that's earmarked for them in those accounts that will definitely go to them. But also I've got leeway within my own savings and investments. Um, if I want to be able to help them out with the cost of university, for example, there's money in my own name that I can then choose what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, as a personal finance blogger, I think you are perfectly positioned to educate, financially educate your children, right? So you're definitely <laughs> on the right, on the right path. They can sometimes <laughs> become the guinea pigs for, for yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> trying out yeah. different apps and different accounts. And uh, there's a lot of pressure in my 12-year-old now if you'd like to have a, a bank card. Um, so I'm working on a post comparing different Ooh. accounts so that she can have her own debit card. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. I mean, the reason I'm asking is because I, I find it very interesting to see the role of percentages. I just interviewed um, an opera singer uh, who is also self-employed and he has to kind of, you know, every time he receives his income, he puts 
his income in, in various pots, really, uh, and there every every pot is a percentage. So, for example, he was saying that he had he put one percent into Christmas, one percent into something else, one percent into something else, and on and on and on. And I've actually recently started doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I know rent is thirty percent of my income, so uh, instead of you know panicking before the rent is due, saying okay, I have to wait for this client to pay me, and why are they so late, blah blah blah. I just you know I keep kind of saving up for it. Uh, every time I, I receive an income, because I'm also self-employed like you. And so I thought, I mean, I, it's just a recent discovery of mine. And I think it's such an amazing idea. Just You just live with percentages your entire life. And, and that means that if your income decreases, then so, does, so do your percentages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if your income increases, then obviously it, kind of everything remains the same, same level. Uh, so you're not you know, fixated on specific numbers. But yeah, I think they're incredibly powerful. I don't know if you have a lot of experience with. Do you also? No, it, mainly- isn't. it isn't something. It isn't. I, that isn't a way that I operate our finance. Okay. I mean, I think I think we do a couple of things. Um, one of them is that we do keep a, a decent slug of money in cash, um, and even in the current account that the bills go out of, there is a you know a decent baseline, a few thousand quid in there, so that. If we have a month when, I don't know, the holiday expenditure goes out or the credit card bill is bigger than normal, there is no chance of going overdrawn and attracting charges on that because there's just a baseline of money in there that that the bills can dip in and out of without going overdrawn. I think the other thing is that we have tried where possible to reduce a lot of our living expenses so that I know... Because one of, one of the things for us in moving to the country was I was able to carry on working freelance part-time around school hours. And my husband was able to return to working for the charity sector. And so I think our, our basic living expenses, his salary is going to cover that. And that is regular money and that will cover our regular bills. And so anything I bring in can cover the extras and the emergencies and the one-off expenses. And then depending and there are direct debits going out for, as I say, things like my pension. But then if there is money left, I can keep an eye on the balances and shovel stuff over into short-term savings. If I can see that Christmas is coming up or, you know, there, there might be the car service or something like that, our annual house insurance bill that's pretty hefty. But then once we've got past those short-term expenditures, see what's left and move that across mm-hmm. into longer-term goals. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's another system. It's just yeah. interesting to compare. It's less, really. less intentional than yours. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's experimenting, right? See what works for you. I mean, I used to do it a bit like that. And then I realized sometimes I was a bit stressed because I, some client was taking one week, two weeks to pay me. Uh, and I mean, it's okay. I mean, maybe not, it's not okay, but <laughs> I was, it was just causing me a bit of anxiety because I was like, okay, now how am I supposed to pay for X, Y, Z if they're paying me late? And I wanted to stop relying on, on these late payments and having to dip into savings just to cover. And then oh, it was a bit of a mess. And now I feel like things are a little bit more in control, but I've only been doing this for a month. So I'm, we'll see. Well, I think, <laughs> I think that's where long-term looking to diversify your sources of income can be useful. So in our own setup, one of the things I think that helps give me peace of mind is, as I mentioned, my husband has a regular salary. I do have some regular income coming in. For example, I do a monthly column with money saving tips um, mm. for Women at Home magazine. Um, also, one of the things that when we moved, 
that freed up money so that we could buy a small buy to let just near us. So that money comes in regularly. So it's just, and then more recently with my blog, I've been able to join um, an advertising agency, um, sign up with Mediavine. So now there are, you know, sorry to say there are ads on my site, but again, that is another source of income that comes in each month so that my additional freelance work that I do and work for come writing for companies that I do, um, that, as you say, can fluctuate. And sometimes the payments don't come when you expect them to. Um, but because there are other sources of income coming in, it's not quite as much of a crisis as it might be otherwise. No, you're right. I just, I need to get more clients onto direct debit, I think. Because <laughs> I, I have one. <laughs> yeah, retainers well, direct debits, very good. <laughs> yes, I love direct debits. And actually, you kind of answered my next question, which was, you know, what encouraged you to move to the countryside? Was it purely financial? Uh, but you, it wasn't, right? You said it was also career, like career influenced you. Can you tell us a bit what encouraged you to move to the countryside and what are all those benefits uh, you were just telling us about earlier on in the episode? I think the real tipping point for us was having the kids. You know, I think up to then, the two of us had been very happy living in London, both working London jobs, bringing in London salaries and, you know, enjoying um, the benefits uh, that living in London can bring. But things changed when we had kids. And I think it had been at the back of my mind, you know, I was questioning when I had children, would I necessarily want to go back to the office job and at the time the commute that involved? And so we had consciously, when we moved in London, not taken on the kind of size of mortgage that would mean that I had to go back to my office job. And so we had already, while we were living in London, kind of adapted to living on less while I was at home with the kids and just starting out with the freelancing and living on my husband's salary. And the tipping point came when one of his contracts came to an end. And this is back in 2014. Um, the housing market at the time was going absolutely crazy. I think pretty much crazy throughout Britain, but especially in London and especially in Hackney where we were living. And we suddenly looked at it and thought we could majorly change our lives if we move from London, this very high cost of living area, if we move to a different part of the country um, with a lower cost of living, specifically lower housing prices, that could make a massive difference. We could kind of step off career treadmills and afford to buy a house outright, no mortgage. So that often in itself cuts down your living costs and the amount of money yeah. you bring in. But then it also freed up the money, as I've mentioned, to buy a small buy to let that then that means regular income. So you've got a tenant that stays. But <laughs> um, so there was regular income coming in from that lower living costs. And as I said, it meant I could stick with the freelance part time and my husband could switch back to the charity sector. Nice. I, I like it because it sounds like a, it sounds like what, what a few people do when they discover the concept of FI, when they realize, OK, instead of trying to save up as much as I can and retire as early as I can, I'm just going to do a life adjustment and kind of maybe work less or part time, move to somewhere that's a bit more relaxed and and just focus on on improving the quality of my life now would you say that's something that what you, what you did really yes 
Yes. And it's one of the bugbears that I sometimes have with FI that you can, um, and, and I have seen it with specific individuals staying in jobs that they hate, yeah. or really don't enjoy, but they are high earning. And the thought is, well, if I can do this job for this number of years and stash away this amount of money and you know then then nirvana then financial independence then i will quit then my life will be different and to me that's that's a waste of the years ahead of you um and i absolutely support the idea of financial freedom and not working yourself into the ground and not not working till you drop um but i think you have to enjoy the life that you're living right now don't don't give up years and years of it in in pursuit of that financial dream work out how to enjoy what you're doing and why you're doing it right now i i completely agree yeah <laughs> i have nothing to add to that um <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um and you in on your blog you you talk a lot about you know keeping your costs down frugality and you also mention a spending diary so could you tell us a bit what a spending diary is and how how do you use it well to me a spending diary is actually the the kind of Uh, the one tip, you know, if I ever get asked, you know, what, what can people do to manage their money better? And it's keep a spending diary, write down every single thing you spend. And when I say, right, um, I actually, I'm a great lover of Excel. So mine's on a spreadsheet, but whether it's a spreadsheet, pen and paper, notes on your phone, I don't mind. And the reason I recommend tracking your spending is because it makes you so much more conscious of where your money is going. I think if you if you don't keep a spending diary, then you might be able to look at your bank statements, um, credit card bills and kind of see big bills going out um, and big chunks of money. But anything you take out from a cash machine can just disappear into a big black hole. And once you start writing it down, you start spotting kind of repeated purchases and you're kind of, well, mm. Do I actually, um, people talk about things like Uber, Uber rides and coffee. And it's those small expenditures that often in themselves aren't enormous. But if you do them sufficiently frequently, they really add up. So for me, the process of keeping a spending diary means that I keep a more active eye on our money. I can nip excess funding in the bear, in the bud. I can look at things and think, well, why was that so expensive? How could I do that differently? It reminds me if I am uh, tracking our bills each month, you know, well, are we on the best deal? Have we come to the end of a deal? Should I be looking for a better option? Oh, that direct debit has crept in or all oh, that trial subscription is about to go up to full whack. I better cancel that quickly. It just keeps me much more in touch with our money so that we spend less and can put more towards our long-term goals. So you write down every single expense. Is that what you're saying? Like physically with your hand and a pen and a paper? Type it in. Type it into the spreadsheet. Oh, oh, really? Like every yeah. single expense? Yep. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I just, uh, I mean, it's how cool. do you... It's quite entertaining yep. looking back at it, you know, okay. the kind of the, oh, when did the car have the MOT and when yeah. we went on holiday or <laughs> kind yeah, of, but when you, that's you always have to have your computer. I'm sorry? Do you always have to have your computer on hand or, or how do you like probably have to remember a few of them and then go to the, yeah. Yeah. If, if you spend the entire day out, for example, how are you going to? Yeah, you get better, you, well, you get better at remembering But also, you know, if, if you are not making that many purchasing decisions, then you, you have less to remember. I It does mean that I, I try and put as much as I possibly can on um, 
credit, I actually, I'm an active user of credit cards. I know some people in the personal mm-hmm. finance space don't approve of credit cards. I like credit cards. If I pay everything on a credit card, then I get a statement that shows all those transactions. Plus I use reward credit cards. So I get, I earn cash back on them. Mm-hmm. So there is a limited amount that I would do on cash. And actually COVID has been great for that because now people yeah. take contact lists that didn't before. And then we'll, it depends. If we are trying to keep a tighter rein on things, then I might be updating daily. There might be other times when I leave it several days or even you know a couple of weeks if we're on holiday and then go through receipts, go through credit card statements, oh, type it up. Okay, okay, now I see it. Um, <laughs> I thought it was like every second. No, I do. Not everybody is going to want to do that. And there are, you know, apps that will track your spending if you give them detail, your online banking details, and they will kind of categorize your spending for you. And they will also, you they will let you set budgets so that you can track, you know, yeah. is my grocery spending bigger than I bigger than I hoped it should be. But I actually find the, the process of doing it on my own um, spreadsheet uh, makes me more aware of the individual yeah. transactions. Yeah, I guess it, it really depends on the person at the end of the day. Uh, if you are, you know, trying to pay off debt, uh, you're struggling a little bit, things are a little tight, then yes, I guess this would be a good strategy. Me personally, I do it once every month. I just, um, what you said, pretty much, I, I use Starling Bank, which is a a, a challenger bank, neo bank, digital bank, whatever you want to call it, fintech. I just type in, and it does all the categorizing, categorizing for me, like what you just said, and then I just update a spreadsheet at the end of the month, and that's it. And usually, that's enough for me. That's enough to tell me, okay, you're spending way too much on X, Y, Z. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, August has not been. Yeah, I've been a bit out of control, so we'll see. But yeah, okay, so that's that's quite interesting. It's really, really, you must have huge spread, spreadsheets, right? A lot of spreadsheets. Uh, yeah, a different spreadsheet each year. And I I'll, one page for the spending. I also have one page for the recurring bills um, yeah. that are pretty similar each each uh, each month. And I have an income page, which as a freelancer is enormous help because if I get commissioned to do work, I'll do a line with um what i'm expecting to be paid and i'll add to it when i've either submitted or invoiced and it means it's very easy to check down and kind of go oh yeah that i haven't it's not been paid (laughs) i need to chase that one Mm -hmm. so excel is like your best friend oh it is i uh, (laughs) one of my friends for my birthday they they uh even gave me a mug saying spreadsheet queen Uh, this has been a, a long love for excel Nice. And what would you say are some things that maybe you focus on as a family in order to keep costs low? You mentioned already moving to the countryside, which was a big one. What are some other things like as a family with two children? I know it can get out of control very quickly. So how do you make sure to keep those apart from also your spending diary? What are some other ways that you try to keep it under control? Well, I think it's part of it is just trying to think about what we enjoy doing. Um, so. And the fact that, you know, for for kids, a lot of the time, I think what's actually important to them is is time rather than just showing up with expensive presents. So, for example, in the school holidays, which can typically be uh, a very expensive time, um, we would try and, and mix and match. So we will have some days when we do cheaper local activities and whether that's going to the local skate park or going for a walk, or doing den building in the woods or checking up a tent in the garden so we can sleep out overnight. You know, we've got a trampoline. I am trying to interest them in gardening. That is not going entirely well. But there's kind of loads of lower cost stuff that you can do. We have, and then mix that up with trying to say, okay, what else can we do? And are there 
ways that we can do it that cost less. So for example, I did a mystery shop. I've done a couple of mystery shops. And one of those was going to a local bowling alley where we had to do bowling and they had to try out the laser tag and try some food. And then I had to write it up and review it. And so we got um, virtually all the costs of that reimbursed. Um, we have National Trust and English Heritage membership, so we'll make the most of those. If we wanted to go to theme parks, like when they were younger, we went to Legoland. So it was things like collecting tokens from the side of cereal boxes that then gave you discounts at Legoland and aquariums, you know, sea life centers, that kind of thing. So trying to mix it up. It's not that every day is going to be something expensive, but if I can find a way that... For example, Greater Anglia, they used to do special fares for kids. So that it was a pound each way return into London. Um, and we take advantage of things like Kids Week at the London theatres to go to matinees on cheaper tickets. Yeah, I think that the fact also that you live in the countryside is incredibly helpful because if you live in a little flat in the city centre, everything you do, you, you need to pay, right? Whereas in the countryside, it's more just you can go out and have fun. You don't have to pay for it. So that's really helpful, right? I think it when we did live in London, there are amazing things that you can do for free, you know, mm. in the local parks and playgroups and going to the major museums and free festivals on the South Bank. You know, one of the things my kids love doing is going into Chinatown and having some money to spend on the kind of Chinese biscuits and sweets that they wouldn't normally get and staring at all the windows and going um Going for Chinese New Year when there's all the lion dancing and the fire stations open, you get the chance to climb into a fire engine. You know, there are there is a lot happening in London that doesn't necessarily have to be super expensive. And if you do ha- a bit like the spending, you have to be more intentional, perhaps you have to do more planning. So I, I am the person who is doing the sandwiches and taking the pat lunches because that is one of the big things that would really um, push up uh, spending on outings. Yeah, that's true. I, it also depends on the city, I guess. London is has great stuff. And maybe if you live in a smaller yeah. city, then yeah, of course. Um, and out of just curiosity, what are, ever since you've kind of been taking this path of minimalism slash frugalism, what are kind of some interesting differences that you've noticed in your day-to-day life? I think the point I was making about planning is a big one um, because basically convenience is expensive. And so if you can, if you're coming to the end of the working day, oh my God, I'm hungry. Perhaps I can't face cooking. If you haven't done any prep beforehand, then it's going to be so tempting to go out for a meal or order in. If you've recognize the fact that you might reach that stage, then you could have thought beforehand, right, I'm going to do a meal plan. Um, I'm going to buy food that's going to cover those meals. Um, I recognize that particular day might be hell on earth. So you know what? I'm going to do a massive spaghetti bolognese before that. So I've got stuff frozen. And if I haven't got that, then I've got some emergency pizzas in the freezer. So you've kind of, you've planned ahead and thought about ways to bring your food spending down and cope with the life that you live. But you, and you've also bought the stuff for the packed lunch because you know that you're going out on the weekend and maybe you've bought the stuff because you want to have friends around, you want to see friends and you've invited them over for dinner, dinner and drinks. And that's going to be um, cheaper and more fun if they come over to your place. Uh, but all of those things require the planning. True. What, what would you say to the statement like, 
I want to earn more money just so I can have these conveniences and not worry about that or think about that. Do you think that that's a fair, I don't know, mentality? Yeah, you know, each each to their own. Um, I, you know, absolutely. If what is important to you is that convenience um, and, you know, you you want to be able to just choose the takeaway, the eating out, you know, whenever you want, uh, you enjoy the food, you enjoy living your life that way. Great. Brilliant. Go for it. Um, but I think there has to be a recognition that that is more expensive than cooking your own food. It just is. Um, and so you therefore, if the money has been spent on the eating out and the takeaways, you won't have it spent on, on the other things. And so I can look at it and think, well, you know what, it's, I'd, I quite like cooking and I'd rather do that and save money towards a holiday, for example. Yeah, it's about what you value at the end of the day, yeah. right? Yeah. Your priorities. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks, Faith. We have our final questions uh, to ask you. And our first one is, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? Well, my blog is muchmorewithless.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, if you want the pictures of life in Suffolk, uh, so at much more underscore less. Sure. And I have got a Facebook group, a Facebook page and a Facebook group, um, the much more with less money saving year Facebook group, which has the advantage that it's a, a closed group so that if you want to post, get advice or reply to things, it won't be splashed below your feed for everybody to see. Nice. We'll add that in the show notes. Our second question is, what is one resource not well known that you would recommend to others? It could be a blog, a podcast or a book, anything really. I think the hesitation, I'm hesitating because I was going to, you know, <laughs> are you going to read any book? The One of the books I love is The Millionaire Next Door, but maybe that's too... Um, it's quite well known, yeah. Quite well known. Um, <laughs> like, we like this question because it gives a bit of... <laughs> Like publicity to to those that are not as well known as you can imagine, right? Oh, now now I've got a huge guilt about um, what I should be saying. Um, Weenie from Quietly Saving, sure, is working towards financial independence, and I really enjoy reading her posts with the nitty gritty about how her investments are going and the you know the reality of her life and how what she's spending, what she's not spending, how her non financial goals are going. Nice. We'll add, we'll add her link also in the show notes. And our third question is, what is your number one actionable tip for someone to get started on their path to FI and minimalism or frugality? Well, we have talked about spending diaries, but I'd say once you have um, sorted out the basics of your money, kind of paying down debt, um, living within your means, making sure you're in the best deals for your utilities and household spending, um, start investing. That is absolutely key if you want to raise a big enough sum that you can retire at the time of your choice you've got to get to grips with investing and actually start doing it yep investing great way to start well faith it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you for your time thank you very much for inviting me it's been fun hey matthias do you think there are no financial independence facebook groups yet Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. 
gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddit, in Facebook groups. The Fire Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is, in the end, the main reason why we started the whole podcast project. To talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions. And, like, hopefully, all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So, yeah, just type in FI Europe podcast. See you in the group. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.